Well, you can turn back to Romans chapter 1. That's where we are this morning, Romans chapter 1. We're going to be starting in verse 18, but we won't get there for a little bit. Let me start this morning by asking you a question. Uh, What do you think the worst job in the world would be? What is the one job in this world that you really, above all else, do not want to have? Um, it, it could be this guy. He's the guy who cleans out the cobra cage every day in the zoo of a third world country. That's a pretty deadly job. I, I would not want that. Um, I, I don't think his job, though, is as bad as this guy. Uh, he's the guy who holds up the target for rifle practice in a communist country. Uh, this guy's job is deadly, but it's also pretty depressing. Uh, he knows that on the organizational chart, he ranks somewhere below cinder blocks. He, he's not even up there with cement blocks to hold this thing up. So uh, not a very good job. There's also this one, uh, someone to grind or chew hay for a horse with bad teeth. How would you explain that to your neighbors? I chew cud for an elderly horse. That would be a pretty depressing job. Uh, Not as bad, though, as as this one. Um, There there is no paycheck in the world that could justify to me being a deodorant tester. I can't imagine how these women bring themselves to show up to work every day. Uh, All bad jobs, pretty awful jobs. Actually, my worst job, the job that to me would be the worst job in the world to have is none of these. It's a far more normal job that sticks out in my brain as the one I would want to avoid at all costs. It's actually oncologist, a doctor who diagnoses and treats cancer. There may be some of you here in this room this morning or some of you who aspire to be that. Great job, but I look at that and think, oh man, not a job I would ever want. My job, pastor, it, it has bad days and it has tough conversations, but it's nothing compared to what you must have to face on a daily basis. I can't imagine what it feels like to sit down with a patient who came to the doctor thinking they're having really bad indigestion or maybe a virus and you have to tell them, no, the tests are conclusive, you have cancer. How in the world do you walk somebody through that? I have so much respect for you who do that. If I ever need your services, I will say one of the things I would look for in an oncologist is a doctor who will tell me the truth straight from the hip, who will tell me the truth as it is, who won't sugarcoat the truth. I don't need my doctor to weep for me or to hug me. I've got other people for that. I would want a doctor who would tell me the truth, even if it's really bad news. Well, that's actually what our passage this morning is designed to do. It is designed to give us really bad news unfiltered, no sugar coating. In our passage this morning, it really is kind of helpful to think about Paul as like a spiritual oncologist. He is sitting down across the table from the human race, from all of human beings, and he sets out on the table all of these conclusive test results and shows us as a race, as a species, we all suffer from something far more devastating than cancer. That's where we're headed this morning, incredibly bad news unfiltered. Before we get there, to set that, let's, let's do a little review real quick. Go back to before this passage, verses 16 and 17. We studied those a few weeks ago. This is the big idea of the book of Romans. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. That's a summary statement of the whole book. The big idea of the book of Romans is the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. Whole book is about the righteousness of God. That's why the big sermon title theme is righteous. The gospel reveals that God is righteous. He is righteous in his nature. 
Righteous in who he is. God is pure, holy, good, right inside, absolutely perfect. And he is not only righteous in who he is, but he is righteous in what he does. Everything that God does as he interacts with his creation, it is all right. God is all right in what he does with us. He is always faithful to himself and to his promises. He always keeps his word. And in the book of Romans, Paul is really focusing on God's righteousness as expressed in his faithfulness to save humanity. That's the big idea of Romans, that God is righteous through the gospel by saving all who believe. That's where we're going. God is righteous in the gospel by saving all who believe. And if you remember a few weeks ago, we've defined some terms here. We talk about the gospel, God's power to save, verse 16. The word save here in this passage does not mean just get to heaven. God wants something far more than just get you to heaven. Save here means the big package of salvation. God wants to make everything right in your life. God wants to make the world right once again. That is what God means by salvation, making all that is wrong right once again. And so the big idea of the book of Romans, if you want to summarize it in in other words, God is proven right by making all things right through the gospel. It's a big idea of Romans. God is proven right by making all things right through the gospel. Now Paul is going to work that theme out through the book of Romans by focusing again on this word righteous. That's his big thing that he's going to be hammering into us over the course of this entire year, the righteousness of God in the gospel. And here's how he's going to lay it out. This is where we're going this semester and next semester, fall and spring. Paul is going to show us how God is righteous in judgment. That starts this morning and goes through chapter 3, verse 20. Next, God is righteous in justification. God is right to declare believers to be right through the death of his son. Third, God is righteous in sanctification. God is right when he makes believers right through the power of his spirit. Fourth, God is righteous in history. Everything God is doing in the past and in the present and in the future in our world is right. He is right in his dealings, especially with the Jewish people. And finally, God is righteous in my life. God displays his righteousness to the world through believers who choose to do what is right. So that's where we're going over the next nine or so months as we flesh out what it means to be righteous, that God is righteous. This morning, we're entering into the first part, and we'll be there for four weeks, four weeks on righteous in judgment, that God is righteous in condemning humanity. So in other words, the next four weeks is all bad news. Next four passages, next four sermons is all bad news. Paul walks us through incredibly bad news over the next four weeks. Now, why does he do that? Why does he spend four huge passages laying out the bad news? Because Paul knows you're not going to appreciate the good news that follows until you understand the bad news. You're not going to appreciate the salvation that the gospel is offering to you until you realize how badly you need it, until you realize how desperate and destroyed you would be without it. To use the age-old illustration, it's like when you go to buy a diamond. The salesman takes the diamonds out of the case, and what does he put them on? Black velvet. Men, when you go to buy an engagement ring, he will put it out on black velvet, and he does that for a very good marketing reason. Because the utter blackness of the velvet is what will make you truly appreciate the beauty and clarity of the flawless diamond he's trying to get you to buy. He knows that you can't appreciate that beauty unless it's on the background of something really, really dark. 
So for the next four weeks, we're going to be walking in the dark. That's the next four sermons. It's all the darkness. Paul is going to sit across the table from us as our spiritual oncologist, and he is going to show all of humanity the devastating diagnosis that we are dead in sin, that sin is ravaging us and destroying us. He's going to show us how bad it is to be part of the human race right now. Okay, so that's where Paul is headed. That bad news starts this morning with verse 18. Look at chapter 1, verse 18. This is really, in some ways, a summary of this whole first section of Romans through chapter 3, verse 20. You can summarize it right here in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. The bad news begins with the wrath of God. It is not only the righteousness of God that is being revealed, it is also the wrath of God that is revealed. And and who is God's wrath revealed against? According to verse 18, it's revealed against anyone who does things that are unrighteous. Anyone who does things that are ungodly. And Paul is going to go to great effort in the next few sermons, the next few passages, to show us that, that that's everyone. The people who verse 18 is talking about, it's not just for murderers and tyrants and drug dealers. It's for all human beings because all of us sin. All of us choose to do those things that we know that God does not approve of. As a result, we are all sinners. And as a result of that, we are all under the wrath of God. That's the bad news, that all of humanity is under God's wrath. Now, what is God's wrath? What does that word mean? God's wrath, the simplest definition I know of, is God's wrath is simply God's anger in action. God's wrath is God's anger against sin put into action. Let me explain that for a moment. What is God's anger? Let's start there. God's anger is God's internal response to sin. God is, anger is what goes on inside of God when he looks down and sees sin. To use human terms, it's, it's how God feels about sin. Now God has, he feels anger towards sin because he is holy. He is perfect. He is just. He is good. When he looks down at the planet and he sees our sin and he sees the, the pain and devastation that our sin causes, he cannot help but feel angry about that. Anger is God's unavoidable response towards sin. If he looked down at the horror and evil and destruction of sin and didn't care, that wouldn't be holy. No, because he is holy, he must hate sin. He must be angry about it. So anger is God's internal response to sin. Now the Bible is clear. God is slow to anger. He he is long-suffering. He can look at sin for a long time while his anger builds very, very slowly. He does not fly off the handle. He is not explosive in his anger. God is long-suffering and patient. And yet, if we continue in sin, his anger builds until it overflows in wrath. That's, That's what wrath is. It is the overflow of God's internal anger into outward action. It is God's anger put into action. Uh, Let me explain it this way. Talk a little bit about human anger and wrath. Um, I have had a a problem that has made me very angry for the last few weeks. Fire ants have invaded my backyard. I have fire ant piles all over my backyard. It makes me angry because I have two two two-year-olds who like to play back there. 
and, and I don't really want them playing around fire ants. I've been angry and frustrated about those fire ants, but I haven't done anything about it because if I go poison them, well, the kids are playing there and the poison could be really serious and bad for them. So I've been angry about it, but I haven't acted upon that anger. Well, on Friday, my kids were playing outside and, and they stuck their hands in an ant pile. And my son Luke got three ant bites on his finger and we found out over the next half hour that he's actually very, very allergic to fire ants. Um, he broke out in hives all over his body and his ears swelled up really big and fortunately we were able to get hold of the doctor and get it treated and all that kind of stuff. But um, when that craziness ended, I said to my wife, sweetie, you got to keep the kids out of the backyard for the next two days because I'm no longer just angry. Now my anger is overflowing against the ants. So I, I drove to Lowe's and I bought the two strongest forms of poison I could find. And last night I went out and I nuked every ant pile there because as, as God is my witness, those ants will die. <laughs> they bit my son and they caused him to swell up like a big balloon. They're going to die. That's my wrath. My anger in action for their destruction. That's God's wrath. It is his anger in action against sin. His anger that brings destruction. Now, the good news is God's wrath is really not like our wrath. I use myself as an example, but his wrath is not like our wrath because human beings, our wrath is so often really ugly. Our wrath is often explosive and unmerited and arbitrary. I had a boss I once worked for. It was really scary to work for this guy because you never knew when he was going to fly off the handle. You never knew when you were going to do just the, the thing that was the, the straw that broke the camel's back and he's going to blow up at you. It's not going to be merit. It's going to be unjustified. He's just going to go off the handle with you. It's scary to be around that. That's not God's wrath. God's wrath is always completely in his control. It is always guided and channeled by his infinite wisdom. It is never explosive and it is never arbitrary. When God acts in wrath, it is always completely fully justified. And yet... To be under God's wrath is always terrifying. If you read the Bible from cover to cover, you will see many examples of God acting in wrath. And in every one of them, you don't want to be the object of his wrath. It's really bad. It's like the one place you don't want to be is under the wrath of God. The bad news is, that's where we are. All of humanity sits under the terrifying wrath of God. Now, I want you to notice something about verse 18 before we move on. Do you notice that it's present tense? For the wrath of God is revealed. It is revealed right now. God's wrath is active in the world right now. God is right now pouring out his wrath, present tense. So, so wrath is present tense. It is also future tense. We're going to talk about that more next week. Look, just for, just for a moment, I'll just give you a summary. Verse 5 of chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 5, Paul says, But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are soaring up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Paul is picturing God's wrath like a, a lake that's held back by a dam. And every time human beings choose to sin, it is storing up wrath on the other side of that dam. But there will come a day when God will burst forth into this universe, when he will come in all of his glory, and on that day the dam will be breached. And all of the wrath that has been stored up will pour out and destroy everything in its path. So God's wrath against sin is both present, our passage, and future, next week's passage. That's the bad news. Humanity sits under the wrath of God, both present and future. Now, to a lot of people, they hear that, and it sounds really harsh. 
seriously, God's wrath is against us? Humanity sits under God's wrath? They, they'll believe it for you know, murderers or tyrants or drug dealers. Okay, those guys, they deserve God's wrath. But, the mo- but most of us, common average people, surely we don't deserve God's wrath. We're trying to be good. We're not perfect, but we're doing the best we can. Surely we deserve God's love, not his wrath. That's what most of society thinks. We deserve God's love, not his wrath. So verse 18 raises a very, very significant question for our society. A very, very significant question for us. Why do we deserve the wrath of God? Is that fair? Why does humanity sit under the wrath of God? That's where Paul is going next. We'll review verse 18 and read on through verse 20. Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse." What Paul is telling us here is is an answer to this question. How can it be fair that humanity sits under the wrath of God? Paul answers that question in two parts. Part one of his answer is, it's fair because God revealed himself in grace. God's first revelation to humanity was not wrath. God did not begin with wrath. What did he begin with? He began with the gift of truth. He began with grace. He revealed himself to all human beings through creation. That's what the universe is. It is God's gift of grace to us. Creation shows us who our God is. It's a gift. Specifically, Paul says there's a number of things that creation tells us about God. A number of ways in which it is a gift of grace. First of all, creation tells us that God exists. It reveals his, his divine nature, as Paul says. It shows us that there is something out there that is much bigger than us, much more powerful, much greater than us. Creation reveals the existence of God. And here's how it does that. I want you to imagine. You're walking down the beach, and you come across a wristwatch half buried in the sand. A beautiful wristwatch, and it's still working. You reach down and you pick it up. Now, it would never cross your mind to think What an amazing product of chance that those sand molecules just combined themselves into this beautiful wristwatch. You'd never think that. What would you think? Man, somebody is really upset that they dropped this watch because this is a nice watch. This watch was designed by somebody with great skill, somebody who is a really wise watchmaker. The beauty, the, the functionality, the complexity, the order of that watch proves to you that it was made by someone skilled. Well, so does the universe. The complexity of the universe, the complexity of life within the universe far exceeds any wristwatch. It is designed to show us without doubt that we have an incredibly wise creator, an incredibly skilled designer. And I would submit to you that that every time science moves us forward to better understand the universe that God has made, science is just feeding our worship. It is just showing us in case after case how brilliant he is, 
And even as past theories of how things work fall to new theories, we just see in more and more beauty the incredible complexity and functionality and order of God's creation. All branches of science lead us to our knees in worship to God. If you doubt that, come talk to me. I'll, I'll talk to you about whatever branch of science you want to talk about, and I'll show you how it leads us to worship. It proves to us that a great, awesome, and wise God exists. Creation demonstrates for us the existence of God. It also demonstrates his power. Paul says his eternal power. This universe is massive. It is beyond us to even see it or comprehend it all. It shows us that God is big, that he is strong. Third, it shows us that our God is glorious. Psalm 19, the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. The universe is telling us of the glory, the the worth, the beauty of God, that he is worthy of praise and adoration and worship. Finally, fourth, creation is displaying for us the goodness of God. Paul says in Acts 14, 17, he, that is God, did not leave himself without witness and that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. In other words, the the way that creation provides for humanity is proof of God's goodness. It shows us that God cares about us. So creation demonstrates that God exists, that he is powerful, that he is glorious, that he is good. God has revealed himself in grace to us. That's where it began, not with wrath, but with grace, with the gift of truth. God revealed his goodness, his beauty, his splendor to us. And how did we respond? What did humanity do with that knowledge? That's the beginning of the next verse, verse 21. Even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. Humanity looked at God in creation and said no. We chose to reject what we can see about God. We turned our backs, we raised our fists against him. Specifically what Paul tells us, Uh, Number one, uh, they did not honor him as God. That's the word glorify. It means to acknowledge that he is God. We say, no, I'm not going to acknowledge that the one who made this is God. Second, we did not give thanks. Creation is a gift. It's meant to be enjoyed. Thankfully, we're not giving thanks to God for it. Humanity has said, no, we will not be thankful for this. And then finally, look down at verse 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer. Uh, Literally, it reads, um, humanity put God to the test. That's what the verb there means. It means we put God to the test and concluded that he did not meet the mark. He did not live up to our expectations. He did not satisfy our desires for a God. And so we said he's not worth it. He, he He is ignorable to us. We rejected God. We saw the grace of his truth and said no. Now, here's the crucial question. Why did we do that? Why does humanity reject God? Paul is is very clear. We do not reject God due to insufficient information. We don't reject God because we don't know enough about him. Paul is clear. We actually know a ton about God. We know everything we need to know about God. Look back at verse 18. At the very end of it, men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. The truth of God's existence and goodness is so clear. It is so in our face when we are in God's creation that you can't ignore it. You have to actually suppress it. The Greek word there is the idea of to restrain, to hold it down, to bury it. 
That's what you have. You have to bury God's truth because it is so clear. He has revealed himself so clearly in what he has made. Look further down, verse 19. God made it evident to them. He didn't put himself in creation in a way where you have to discover him. He's not hiding in the universe. No, God is making himself evident to all people. He wants to be clearly seen. He's made himself evident. Look in verse 20, about midway through it, it says, have been clearly seen. These things about God, these truths about God, they have been clearly seen. The Greek there emphasizes the idea of God's truths in creation aren't just seen, they're obvious, They're absolutely obvious to anyone looking at creation that God exists. So no person rejects God because they have insufficient information. What that means is that no person will stand before God for judgment and be condemned because they lacked information. There will be no one who stands before God and is condemned to hell because they didn't receive information about God. Everyone has the information, at least step one of it, that they need. Human beings will stand before God and be condemned because they took the revelation God had given them and rejected it. They chose to reject him even though he clearly revealed himself to us. So humanity doesn't reject God because of insufficient information. God has given us plenty of information. The reason we reject God is because we love our sin. Look again at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth, and here's the key, in or by means of unrighteousness. We suppress the truth through sin. We suppress the truth because we love sin. We suppress the truth because we're not willing to let go of our sin. It's, it's fascinating what Paul is saying. What he's saying is that whether humans are willing to, re- to recognize it or not, all human beings would prefer the pleasures of sin to the power of truth. That, that's what human beings do. If we have to choose between the two, the pleasure that sin gives us or the truth that we could have, we always choose sin because we love it. We love our sin. We, we hold on to our sin, and so with, with our pet sins in hand, we bury the truths of God. We cover them up because we want to hold fast to our sin. Now, what that means for us is that when we're interacting with someone who has rejected God, especially someone who is a, an atheist or an agnostic, we need to remember the ultimate issue for them, the reason they're rejecting God, is not a head issue. It's a heart issue. No one is an atheist because of a head issue. Now, they may believe that they are. I'm not saying that they will admit that to you. They're probably not aware of it. You know, though, Paul is clear. They have chosen to reject God, whether they realize it or not, because they love sin. Not because of logic or science. Logic and science are just the props they're using to support the decision they already made out of love for sin. So when you're praying for an atheist or an agnostic, Pray that God would open their eyes and their heart. Pray that God would work in their heart to break them of their love for sin because that's the only thing that will bring them to faith. It's not a logic issue. It's not a science issue. It's not a mental issue. It's a heart issue. We reject God as a species because we love sin. That's the bad news. And because we reject God, Because we hold up our fists and say no to the one who has given us this amazing grace, this beauty and order and and complexity and wonder in creation, because we reject him, he gives us wrath. That's where we started this morning. 
The, the uh, result of our rejection is God's wrath. And that's where Paul is going to move next in the passage. He is going to begin to lay out for us the results of God's present wrath. Again, remember in this passage, we're talking about wrath as it is currently falling from heaven upon humanity. What does it look like? What does God's wrath against sin look like right now? That's the subject of the rest of the passage really from verse 21 to the end of the passage, verse 32. And there's a key phrase. Let me point out this key phrase to you before we even read it. It's repeated three times. Key phrase, God handed them over. God gave them over. You see that starting uh, in verse 24. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. You see it again in verse 28. God gave them over to a depraved mind. You see it... Verse 26, God gave them over to degrading passions. Three times you see this idea. God gave them over. Gave them over to what? Gave them over to sin. Gave them over to their sinful desires. That's how God's wrath is operative in the world right now. He hands human beings over to what they want. He gives us what we love. He simply gives us the sin we want to run after. I like to think of it this way. Here's how God's wrath is working in the world at the moment. A picture that God is holding on to a rope. And at the other end of the rope, a boat is tied. And humanity is sitting in that boat. And that boat is floating in a powerful river. A river that's rushing by, that has powerful rapids, that leads to a waterfall that will kill you. Okay, God is straining against that rope and holding that boat close to the shore. He is holding it out of that deadly current. But we don't like that. Humanity's sitting in the boat and looking out at the river, and the river looks really fun. We look out there and think, man, that would be thrilling. That that would be exciting. We look at that rushing river and adrenaline courses in our veins. We think, I want that. We want the thrill of sin, the excitement of sin, and so we begin to push back against God. We don't want him holding that rope. We strain against him. We fight against him. And so finally, in wrath, he simply lets go. That's how God's wrath is operative in the present. He simply lets go. It's passive. He doesn't have to actively intervene in wrath yet. He'll do that in the future. Right now, wrath is simply he lets go of the rope. And he lets human beings drift out into that current and get caught in the rapids that lead to destruction. That's how wrath works in the moment. God gives us the desire of our hearts. He gives us over to the destruction of sin. He lets sin wreak havoc in our lives. And specifically, Paul gives us three things that sin does to us, three ways that it destroys us. First, it destroys our minds. Look with me, going back to verse 21. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Notice what happens here. Humanity rejects God, and what happens, middle of verse 21, they became futile in their speculations. That word, speculations, it means their reasoning ability. And the verb here, it's passive. They don't choose to become worthless in their reasoning. It happens to them. Because they have rejected God, their reasoning capacity begins to rot. And Paul's point is not that sinners, that that people who have rejected God, his point is not that they can't think. His point is that they can't think about the right things. Their minds get consumed by worthless thoughts, by worthless cares, by worthless things. 
Okay, so their minds get consumed by all of this worthless stuff. Consequence number two, right after that. Their foolish heart was darkened. Heart here in the Bible, it's talking about everything inside of you, the inner self. It's your emotions, your thoughts, your will, your feelings, all of that rolled together into the term heart. Their heart became darkened. Again, this isn't something they choose. This is what sin does to them. It darkens them. It's the idea of like a fog settling in on them. They no longer can perceive truth. They no longer can feel rightly. They can no longer walk in reality. They don't see the world as it truly is. They don't see themselves as they truly are because they're walking in the dark. Because they rejected God, now darkness has settled within them. It clouds everything they are. As a result, the next consequence, professing to be wise, they became fools. Even though they claim to be so wise, there's so many people who have rejected God who are really, really smart people. They're people who win Nobel Prizes. They're people who write books and lead universities. Really, really smart people. They have lots and lots of information, and yet Paul says they are fools. They lack wisdom. They have lots of knowledge, but they don't know what to do with it. They are fools. Actually, Proverbs tells us that too. According to Proverbs, the beginning of wisdom is what? The fear of the Lord. You cannot begin on the path of wisdom until you fear God, until you revere and acknowledge that he exists, that he is there. If you choose to reject them, then by logical necessity, you are condemning yourself to folly. You are making a fool of yourself. There is no other option. When a person rejects God, he makes himself a fool. And that folly is expressed in verse 23 by the the stupidest of all sins. Verse 23 is about the sin of idolatry. There's no sin that is dumber than idolatry. And we all do it. Every time we go worship something that is not God, every time we exalt something of this world and hold it up in contrast to God, we're committing idolatry. And Paul says, that's really dumb. When you hold up the things of this world and exchange God for them, you are making the fool's choice. You're exchanging that which is eternal and powerful and satisfying and can give you hope. You are exchanging that for that which is temporal and worthless and powerless and hopeless. That's the choice we make in idolatry because we have become fools. When we choose to reject God, then sin has its way with us and the first thing it does is destroy our minds. It destroys our ability to think rightly. It makes fools of us. Second consequence Paul lays out. Sin not only destroys their minds, but sin destroys their bodies. Look with me starting in verse 24. Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged a natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Now Paul wants to prove the point that sin destroys our body and so he looks at two particular sins. They're both types of sexual immorality. In verse 24, he's talking about ritual or temple prostitution. He's talking about the sexual immorality that went hand in hand with pagan idolatry in the ancient world. Really, really immoral thing, pagan idolatry. And so he's, he's looking at that first. That's the first example he throws out there. It brings, uh, it brings dishonor to your body. It destroys you when you do this. The second example he looks at is homosexuality. 
That's the next place he goes, the specific sexual sin of homosexuality. And let me make this clear. Paul is not flagging, he is not raising up homosexuality because it is the worst of all sexual sins. No. He's raising it up because it is one that is the most obvious to see the foolishness behind it. In homosexuality, someone is choosing to exchange the natural order, what God created to bring life and satisfaction and contentment. They're willingly exchanging that which is satisfying and natural for that which is unnatural and destructive. It is proof of how foolish they've become. Okay, Paul throws out those two examples to prove the global point, but that last one is big for us. Homosexuality is the defining social issue of this generation. You can't turn on the TV without seeing what's going on with homosexuality. And so next week, next sermon is going to be completely dedicated to this topic. We're going to come back to these two verses and talk about how does God think about homosexuality. We'll we'll flesh that out. We'll look about uh, what that means for our politics, for our lives, for our counseling, all of that. Um, We're going to look at that all next week. And, And I wanted to let you know, particularly parents... The sermon next week, it's not going to be graphic. I'm not going to go into anything graphic, but it is a very adult topic that we're talking about. So parents, if you have kids who are less than 10 years old, I would encourage you, it may be a good idea next week to not bring them in here. So we're going to have childcare available for everyone at both services for kids all through nine years old. So you can just take your kids to childcare. They'll have things to do. Uh, Probably wouldn't be appropriate to bring them here. Now, if you have kids who are 10 and through junior high, so maybe fourth, fifth, sixth grade and junior high, we do actually have care available for them next week also. We have options for fourth, fifth and sixth graders. Junior high will be hanging out in the youth room so you can send your kids there. But I, I do want to encourage you parents, if you have kids who are 10 years old or up, they need to hear about homosexuality because they're hearing about it. They're hearing about it every time they watch TV, see a movie, read a book, read a magazine, go to school, interact with our society or culture, hear anything political. They're hearing about homosexuality. So they need to hear from us. They need to be given a biblical understanding of homosexuality. So if you have kids 10 or up, I want to invite them to come next week. They're they're welcome to be here, but maybe as a parent, you would prefer for them not to hear about homosexuality from me. Maybe you'd prefer for them to hear it from you. I think that's a really good decision too. If that's the case, then again, you can take your kid, drop them off, but make sure that later in the week, you take what we're gonna learn next week and you share it with them. Because they need to know They need to be prepared. There's no way they don't know about it if they're 10 or up, okay? So just a word of warning for you parents. Do with that as you see fit. Paul's big point here, where we're gonna leave it for today, we'll come back next week, is really the end of verse 27. Receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Paul's point is that sin, and particularly these sins of sexual immorality, they bring destruction to their bodies. There are physical consequences of sin. That's very easy to prove. For all sin, there are physical consequences. It might be something as light as guilt or shame. When you feel guilt or shame, it has a physiological interaction with your body. It makes you sick when you are weighed down with regret. If it's sexual sin, especially long-term sexual sin, there could be sexual disease, there could be unintended pregnancies, there could be all kinds of destructive things that happen to your body if you give in to sin. Sin destroys your mind and it destroys your body. Third, it destroys your relationships and society as a whole. That's where Paul goes next in verse 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind 
to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. I've got to say, that's like the most depressing thing to read in my Bible. That's an incredibly depressing list. All of these sins, societal, relational sins that Paul lays out. But understand, he's not laying them out here to convict you. He's laying them out here. This is the consequence section. He's laying them out because he wants us to understand. If you choose to reject God, then this is what you get. This is what sin will do to you. This is what sin will bring into your life, into your family, into your business, into your neighborhood, into your community, into your nation, into your world. This is what sin does. And he lists it with this list that just overwhelms us. It is an overwhelming list because he wants us to understand humanity is destroyed by sin. This is humanity at the brink as Paul lists it. It is humanity falling apart. It's culminated. Climax is in verse 32. Humanity is so bad that not only do they do evil things, but they rejoice when others do evil things. In other words, in verse 32, the worst sin of all is that you become a cheerleader of evil. That's where sin leads us. It makes us into cheerleaders of evil. Not only can we not tell the difference anymore between good and evil, but now we celebrate that which is evil. This is the the Romans in the battles between the gladiators. As they sat in the Colosseum, they celebrated murder. And this is us. This is America when on TV, in the movies, internet, pop culture, we celebrate that which is sinful and destructive and evil. God looks at that and he says, that's the pinnacle. There it is right there. You've become a cheerleader of evil. That is the destruction that sin brings in our lives. Humanity at the brink, destroying itself because it has chosen to reject God. Chapter one of Romans, 18 through 32, is all bad news. Incredibly bad news. It tells us that all human beings, at least all who are of an age and a mental capacity to observe creation, this passage is not talking about babies, it is not talking about the severely mentally handicapped, it's talking about all the rest of us, most of us in the room, most of humanity at large, it's saying that humanity at large, we reject God because we love sin. And when we reject God, he hands us over in wrath to the consequences of our sin, and like a rushing river, it leads us to our destruction. That's the bad news, the pit, the spiral of Romans 1. But there is good news, very, very good news. It's what came before. Verses 16 and 17. Remember what this passage follows. There is great news. It is the power of God's salvation, the gospel. The gospel is an offer of God to save you from Romans 1. That's what salvation is about. It's about reaching down into the pit of our sin and destruction and raising us up through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the great news this morning. God doesn't want to leave you in the pit of Romans 1. He wants to raise all human beings out of that, and he does so through the gospel. It's his free offer. Even after revealing himself in grace through creation, now he reveals himself in grace through the gospel. You rejected me, but I'm going to show you grace again by sending my son to die for you and rise from the dead. You are saved if you believe. 
Jesus Christ saves us from the wrath of God. That's what the cross is. It's the place where Jesus went to experience the full brunt of the wrath of God. God poured all of his wrath upon the Son so it doesn't have to fall on us. You can be delivered from God's wrath now and forever if you simply look to Jesus in faith. If you're here this morning and, and, and it's just too hard for you to do that, either you don't believe Jesus existed, you don't believe uh, the, the things we say about him, or you just don't believe that you really could be saved simply by faith, please come talk to me or someone else here this morning. Whether you realize it or not, Paul is really clear. You are right now trapped in the pit of Romans 1, 18 to 32. God wants you out of that. He wants to raise you out of it, and he does so through the gospel. So please come talk to us. And for those of you who have trusted in the gospel, you have put your faith in Jesus alone. You believe that he died for your sins and rose from the dead to give you eternal life. If that's you, then actually Romans 1, 18 through 32, even though it's really, really bad news, actually for us, it's really, really good news. Why? Because it shows us what God has saved us from. If you've trusted in Jesus, I have really good news for you. Romans 1, 18 to 32 no longer applies to you doesn't apply to you now, it will never apply to you because Jesus saves us from the wrath of God. Now, if you give in to sin as a believer, there will be consequences that come into your life, but they're motivated by God's discipline, not his wrath. God's discipline is his fatherly love towards his people. His love which corrects us, which pulls us back from sin so that we can be restored and redeemed. God's discipline is redemptive. His wrath is not. His wrath is just destructive. So the great news for us is if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, this passage no longer applies to you. You've been saved. You've been drawn out of this. And so as you look at this passage, my challenge for you, for believers, for all of us, myself included, this week, will we give thanks? This week, will we get on our knees before God and say, thank you, God, for saving me from the pit of Romans 1, 18 through 32. This passage should lead us to such thankfulness, such gratefulness. Whether we realized it or not, we were there and God in grace saved us from it. So spend some time this week thanking God for his incredibly gracious salvation through Jesus Christ. And also this week, be looking for and praying for those who are still stuck in there. Those who haven't yet embraced the gospel those who are still, because of their love for sin, rejecting God and experiencing the horrors of God's wrath, pray for them. Pray that God would do whatever it takes to break them of sin. Even if that means hitting some of the boulders in that rushing river, whatever it takes, pray that God would open their eyes to see him and believe and look for opportunities to share the good news. Hey, God is offering you a ladder right now. You can get out of this pit right now. Share that good news with them, the good news of the gospel. Let's pray for those people in our lives right now. Lord God, we come before you this morning. And Father, we are so, so thankful. Lord, for many of us, we we live our day-to-day lives without remembering what you have saved us from. We forget how deep and dark that pit of sin was. We don't realize where it was leading us towards a waterfall of eternal wrath. Lord, thank you for reminding us of that this morning. Thank you that in grace, in incredible grace, you reached down your hand and plucked us out of that boat. Not because we deserved it, not because we merited it. In fact, we were your enemies, and yet in grace, you freely reached down and pulled us out. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for sending your own son, Jesus, to take our wrath in our place so that we might be saved. 
And Father, we do lift up to you people in our lives, in our families, who work with us, who go to school with us, who, who don't yet know the gospel, Lord, or who haven't yet believed in the gospel. Father, we know that no matter how polished their lives look, no matter how good their lives look on the outside, we know this passage is true of them. They have rejected you. They've done it because of love of sin, and that sin is now wreaking havoc in them whether they realize it or not. Please, Lord, rescue them. Let this be the week when you draw them out of the pit of despair of Romans 1, 18 to 32. And Lord, use us in that process. Please help each one of us to be bold witnesses of the salvation you offer in the gospel. Help us to be passionate about sharing what Jesus has done for us. Please, Father, use us to rescue men and women in this town and in this nation from sin. Thank you, Lord, for your grace, your goodness, your truth given us in your Son. In his name we pray, amen. God bless you guys. See you next week.